the Nigerian public were threatened that they were going to be body bags and people were disseminating hate speeches and fake news and a lot of misinformation and it got people really scared. Hello, everyone. I'm JT, and welcome to Global. Today, we are looking at Africa's most populous country, Nigeria, and its recent elections. You should check back in your feed for the recent podlet we did on electoral administration to understand some of the complexities that Nigeria struggled with in February. It's not an easy task to hold an election, and certainly not for a country that has 84 million voters. Nigeria has struggled to consolidate democracy since gaining independence in 1960. After a brutal three-year civil war, Nigeria was dominated by military juntas until 1999 when it was transferred to civilian leadership. Elections were held in 2003, 2007, and finally had some really free and fair and credible and transparent elections in 2011, solidifying civilian rule in the country. The 2015 election was notable for continuing a smooth transition of power to an opposition candidate without violence. This transition was viewed as a watershed in Nigerian democracy, and had reverberating effects throughout the region and the rest of the African continent. Speaking of Nigeria's influence in the region, it cannot be understated from an economic, security, and political perspective. Nigeria has been instrumental in helping calm conflict in neighboring countries and in guaranteeing political transition in the region. As we'll see in the conversations, this most recent election originally scheduled for February 16th and held February 23rd were important for multiple reasons. We're going to look at what these elections meant from a few different perspectives. As IRI and our sister organization, the National Democratic Institute, did an electoral observation in Nigeria, we've got some great perspectives from the ground. For this episode, we spoke to three unique individuals covering different aspects of Nigeria's democracy. First, Samson Itoto, founder and executive director of Yaga Africa. Samson was among those who supported a domestic observation effort in these Nigerian elections and has a lot to say about what actually occurred on the ground. Second is Dr. Christopher Munio, Senior Associate for Africa at the National Democratic Institute, NDI. And thirdly, Judd Devermont. He is the head of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington, D.C., also known as CSIS. And he is a well-known Africa follower. First up, we've got Samson Atoto from Yaga, Africa. Samson and I spoke from Abuja just days after the March 9 state-level elections, and he had a lot to say about how the elections from the state level occurred and also at the federal level on February 23rd. A key issue Samson raises in the interview links to issues of the military interfering in the electoral process, particularly during the state-level elections. And there are also some reports during the federal elections as well. Another key issue that Samson raises in this interview deals with the issue of the political class and how that impacted voter turnout in these elections and certainly is impacting elections in Nigerian democracy writ large. He calls for a conversation. He calls for a discussion. He calls for citizens to engage so that when elections come around in Nigeria again in 2023, things may be different. Things can be different. And in his view, things should be different. So let's listen to what Samson has to say. Hello, 
So welcome, Samson, uh, to the IRA Global podcast. We're here in Abuja, and we're just on the other side of state-level elections that occurred on March 9th. One of the features of those elections, not necessarily features, but certainly one of the challenges of those elections was looking at the role of the military. Of course, the security of elections is mandated uh, to be controlled by the Electoral Commission, and then the police is the leading security agency. Um, but the military is being forward deployed and already in a number of states and um, having gotten involved in some parts of the electoral process. Maybe you could give us some thoughts on the kind of challenges that poses and what you sort of see of the, the major issues related to that. Uh, thanks, JT, and, and thanks for having this podcast focused on Nigeria, because Nigeria is not in isolation of other countries, and so um, it's, it's a delight to have this conversation. I'm talking about military interference with the electoral process for this election. Compared to previous elections, um, this interference has been more brazen. As we speak of pre-election, pre um, mm -hmm. there's military presence in about 34 states, owing to either the insecurity challenges that Nigeria is grappling with, um, with insurgency, with the farmer headers crisis, uh, with increased um, criminality, uh, as well as um, ethnic fragmentation yeah, and the rise of um, secessionist movements. And so across 34 states, you've got huge military presence. But the electoral law of Nigeria limits the functions of the military to um, providing security for officials and election materials. Mm -hmm. But that is contingent on a requisition that has to be made by the Electoral Commission. And so if the Electoral Commission does not request, um, the military cannot deploy. What we have experienced is it's, um, it's quite unfortunate um, because military men were, were visibly disrupting elections in a couple of states. And this is really unacceptable. And it poses a huge threat to our democracy. And so one of the things this election has done is to validate the school of thought that democracy is receding in Nigeria. You know, one of the things that we've heard from the military after this election and when some of these concerns were raised that actually it wasn't their men that these were people, thugs, who were given guns and military uniforms, and they were the ones, really, who were doing the mischief. Well, it's a possibility, because we've got um, reports where fake military men or, or mm. fake police, but if that is the case, it says a lot about our security forces in Nigeria. Yeah. Especially for an election that is... that all the different stakeholders had been preparing for a long period of time. And so that raises a lot of questions around the integrity as well as the transparency of our military forces. And I think accountability needs to be demanded from the, from the military. But the disruption of voting and the, the, the attempt by the military to subvert the process in an election that is a civilian affair really casts doubt on our democratic credentials. Certainly as a country celebrating two decades of return to civilian multi-party democracy, and here we have the military possibly um, really uh, taking over elections in certain parts. Um, it seemed that this really rose up though, really in the yeah. state level elections and wasn't as prevalent in the presidential and federal legislative elections that occurred on February 23rd. Uh, is there a reason for that? 
There are several reasons. Um, one, it's about um, the deployment of federal might to seize political power in sub-regional entities like the state. And if you look at these states where there was heavy military presence and, and disruption, there are states that are under the control of the opposition party, the PDP. And the contest is more yeah. about resources, it's more about fiscal, um, the control of, of the resources that Nigeria has. And so the, the federal government and the ruling party is interested in seizing um, political power from, from those states. The second is the fact that our political parties are not necessarily concerned about the development of the people. They are more concerned about how do they seize political power for their own personal gains. Mm -hmm. And that has been the bane of our underdevelopment as a country and something that needs, needs to be addressed. And to say the least is, you know, taking over and undermining democratic institutions. There is no way the Electoral Commission could have conducted elections under those circumstances. We saw in the presidential elections, in fact, in Akwaibom, for instance, where one of the political godfathers in, in Akwaibom deployed military men and went to the Superac, a registration area, and abducted INEC officials and materials. It took the resistance by the resident electoral commissioner for Akwaibom State, who insisted on conducting free, fair, and credible elections, despite the level of threat and intimidation. So you can see that there were, in, there were interferences that also undermined the Electoral Commission, that it's an agency of protection in a democracy. And so when you undermine the, the um, INEC, INEC can no longer perform its functions, and then the politicians just have their, their way at the expense of the people. What struck me, and, and I observed in, in Niger State, just outside of Abuja, Although INEC does have a role to play and should bear some responsibility for the challenges in the election, but you sort of wonder, really, who's in charge? And that goes to watching the impunity in which the party agents interfere in the process, especially in these elections. I saw them in multiple occasions overstepping their boundaries. And that was both sides, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, whether it was the opposition or the ruling parties, you know, party agents. I saw one accredited party agent, his, his tag said, pulling agent. I mean, he'd even, his party had even misspelled the word poll. Yeah. But, you know, they make these fake accreditation badges. They show up and they sort of take over things. Yeah. So th there is a serious a rethink that needs to take place here. Before I move away, though, into maybe more of the political party side of this is there seems to be an issue of command and control just in general. The president is a former military guy. How does this happen without him knowing about it or controlling it. When you talk about investigation or you talk about holding people accountable, it seems he's one of the more fitting people given he's not only the commander in chief, he's a former you know, military leader. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I just kind of wanted to see what you thought about that. You know what, JT, the tragedy for Nigeria is the dominance of a political class that don't care. From the president down to the local government chairman, they don't care. Mm -hmm. In the build-up to this election, the president gave an order shooting or killing any individual who is involved in electoral malpractice, especially snatching ballot boxes. And we've seen how the military men complied with that order and shot people who snatched ballot boxes. And that is in contravention of our law. The Constitution and the Electoral Act is very, very clear. That snatching of ballot boxes is an electoral offense. And there are sanctions within our electoral law. 
if it's a criminal offense, there are criminal sanctions for um, defaulters. But you saw the army actually take that order and they shot people who were snatching ballot boxes. And that simply tells you um, what is the paradigm of the leadership at the top. That poses a challenge for democratization because how do political parties develop? How does our National Assembly and the Parliament develop if from the top there's disregard for these institutions? So that, yeah. That's, a, yeah. that's, a, that's a very big yeah. um, problem. So when you talk about command and control, look at the number of deaths that we've recorded in this election. And it's the president high. is yet to make any key remark on this and call the military to order. And so accountability rests before the president. He is our president. He's the one we know. He's the commander-in-chief. And if in the days ahead the army is not called to account, then it means he endorsed their action. It's pretty strong. Uh, when it comes to the issue of political parties, though, it seems that also they need to be held accountable for some of the things that we've seen in this mm -hmm. election through our observation. We called out political parties and, and, and pointed out that they really were the weakest link. First of all, do you agree with that? And, and second, if so, where? So I belong to the school of thought that um, believes that what we have are not political parties. We just okay. have cabals of individuals who are just interested in, in seizing political power. So maybe if we want to um, romanticize this conversation and make it look good, we say, yeah, these formations are political parties. But quite frankly, they are not political parties in the true sense of the word. And all they exist for is how to seize power to advance their own personal gains. And the political class and citizens need to have a deep conversation on what kind of political formations do we want to have. Are they willing, is the political class willing to have that conversation? They are not willing, but citizens have to force them to do that. Okay. Because this country belongs to us all. And in the post-2019 era, citizens need to claim, and the NDI and IRI statement was very, very profound um, and calling on citizens to reclaim and claim their democracy. The future of our democracy is going to be determined by how citizens in the post-2019 era place a demand on this system. As far as I am concerned, majority of those in our political class are not interested in this conversation. Because if they were, they wouldn't be buying votes in these elections. They won't be deploying security forces to subvert the will of the people. They won't be ordering agencies of state that ought to protect citizens to be shooting and killing um, citizens. If they care, then by today, we should have cases already filed in court and prosecuting people. I want to go back, though, to the citizens in this conversation, because I've heard you use this in a couple of forums. Uh, and I was keen, just in the room opposite this, uh, where we wrote this statement, the night before releasing it, I was keen on bringing up this issue of civic duty and civic responsibility on the part of Nigerians. Now you have very low turnout numbers. Many people could say, well, some of those low turnout could be about the fact that the elections were postponed. Turnout could be low because of violence. People really wanted to exercise their right to vote. Or do people just don't care? And, and I've come across people who uh, have said, and our observers have seen people who've said, yeah, I've got my PVC, but I needed it because Nigeria doesn't have a national ID. Mm. That's the only reason why I registered. I don't want to vote. I don't want to get involved in all of this. How do you get those people to change their mind? For turnout, there are a lot of factors. We can't 
ignore the fact that there's a crisis of confidence in the electoral process on the part of citizens. And for them, it's not necessarily that the Electoral Commission will not count their vote, but they are very, very concerned about the transparency and the credibility of the process and the level of interference by other exogenous institutions into the work that the Electoral Commission conducts. So if their votes will not count, why should they bother showing up uh, on election day? The second is, I think across the world, Nigeria is one of the countries where it is difficult to be a voter. In fact, it's even more expensive to be a voter in Nigeria. You show up for an electoral activity three times. First, you show up to register, you have to show up to collect your permanent voter's card, and then you show up to cast your, your vote. And so the process discourages people from showing up. Uh, um, Actually, know. voters probably showed up four times, right? Oh, because yeah. in this election, mm-hmm. five hours to the opening of the polls, after all these Nigerians had traveled home to their yeah. home constituencies, yeah, and they they're told, to. sorry, mm-hmm. come back. And postponement is also one of them. And the postponement of, the, of this election also dampened the, the interest of, of Nigerians um, to vote in the process. The, the fourth issue was the militarization um, and the level of violence. Yeah. Um, before these elections, the Nigerian public were threatened that they were going to be body bags. And people were disseminating hate speeches and fake news and a lot of misinformation. And it got people really scared. And you could see what happened in the presidential elections and how people showed up and they were intimidated by the, by the military or by security agencies. And that created a lot of fear. And people just sat back and didn't show up for these elections. Yeah. The fifth was also the level of mobilization for this election was very, very low. Everyone focused on the February 23rd, the presidential elections and the National Assembly elections. But these local elections are very critical. Maybe we need to spend a lot more time in this post-election period to talk about the value of participation in local governance uh, and also begin to empower people at the states to hold democratic institutions at their stage really accountable. Now we're going to hear from Dr. Chris Fimunio from NDI. Chris was a key traveling buddy of mine these past few weeks in Nigeria. We observed both elections, uh, but we also served on a number of pre-election missions leading up to the polls. Chris and I discussed a number of key issues, one of which is the role of political parties in reforming Nigeria's electoral system, the things that need to change, the things that are right, the things that are wrong, and how to get there, with a key focus on getting more women and youth involved in the political process. And that's gonna have to start, one, by engaging with political parties, but two, really making sure that women and youth are encouraged to participate. Uh, When you have elections like the ones you just had, that creates some serious challenges because people lose motivation. So we'll see how that plays out. Finally, Chris and I speak a little bit about international observation, how that ties in with what citizens do on the ground in their countries when they observe their own elections. Um, Very interesting interview. Chris, you were with me and both of our organizations observed Nigeria's elections, the March 9th state-level elections, but also the February 23rd federal 
Um, but I want to get into some of the statements that we've made and some of the information that we've put out there and sort of get some further thoughts, particularly after the first round of elections on February 23rd, we really focused in on some of the challenges that political parties presented as, as really an important factor in sort of how elections can go well or not very well. But we looked at them as sort of the weakest link, and it really is a place where Nigerians really need to look at reform in the future. And I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that, why that is, and, and two, where do you think things need to change? First of all, I was uh, very pleased that IRI and NDI were able to um, work on uh, observing the elections in Nigeria. I mean, Nigeria is a very important country on the African continent. One of every sixth African is Nigerian. Uh, it's a country that for many years had been ruled by the military and then in 1999 made a transition from military to civilian democratic rule. And both of our organizations have been in there working with civil society organizations, working with political parties, elected officials, trying to help our domestic partners provide opportunities for youth and women to get engaged in the political process. Now to go in in 2019 and observe the elections uh, gave us an opportunity to really assess how well the country was doing in its democratization efforts. I think we both agreed that political parties in Nigeria are the weakest link in the country's democratic architecture. Uh, civil society is doing very well. It's very vibrant. The institutions of the National Assembly seem to be quite representative of citizen interest and the diversity of the country. Uh, but the political parties are not functioning the way that you would expect parties to function. There are not many opportunities for young people to engage through political parties. The track record of women winning elective office is very poor. In fact, Nigeria has the poorest track record on the African continent. And so I think that's reason for us to really zero in on what needs to be done by Nigerian political leaders to make sure that they can open up space and also that the parties can function not just like electoral clubs, uh, but more as political parties that have platforms that really represent policy positions on the major issues that the country faces. Just looking at also political parties, we noticed a lot with the role of the youth and the need for them to be more directly brought into leadership positions and certainly to get involved. If you were talking to political parties today in Nigeria, what would you tell them in terms of what they need to do to really open the doors to youth? GT, you and I, in a number of the meetings we had with political leaders in Abuja, uh, we always heard them say, oh, yes, yes, we also committed to youth and women. But, yes. You know, yes. Like, so what are you doing? Lots of make, commitments. Exactly. Yes. Lots of verbal commitments. But I would say that, uh, for example, they ought to create opportunities within the leadership of the political parties to have youth and women, because from that point onward, you kind of set the example and set the tone. But if you're going to confine women to, oh, the women's wing of the party and youth to, oh, the youth wing, then there's always going to be this perception that uh, they're just there to kind of cheer the party leaders when there's an event or to mobilize people to come out uh, into the streets if there's a demonstration. And they're not really wielding power within the political parties. Uh, I would also say that the nomination process needs to be reviewed in a way that can allow more women and more youth to get party nominations. We saw that 
even though in numerical terms, the number of young people who picked up nominations had increased in 2019, there were people who had tickets from the small parties, which everyone knew wouldn't be able to win seats in the national elections. So I think the major parties really need to do a concerted effort, to make a concerted effort to give opportunities for youth and women to run. Despite the lip service that they're paying, what is going to force them to do it? And it seems to me that what really needs to also happen, aside from issues of reform that the National Assembly needs to take up, the president-elect, should the court case and all the challenges he's facing at the moment result in his inauguration and everything move forward. But there's also a need for civil society or at least citizens in general, young people and women, to really put initiatives together to push for substantive reform, much like youth groups did in the push for the not-too-young-to-run legislation that resulted in a lowering of candidate ages. What are your thoughts on that, particularly the role of civil society? Sure. You know, that was one of the um, bright spots in the conversations that we had in Nigeria, uh, meeting with people who are very determined to make sure that the next elections in Nigeria become an elections that usher in a new generation of Nigerian leaders. And I think everybody needs to start working on that right now, preparing for the next election and not wait until 2023. For example, we heard in our meetings in Abuja that the National Assembly of Abuja has a bill on gender equality and uh, opportunities for women that has been languishing in the legislative branch of government for the past 11 years. And I think those would be some visible actions that would demonstrate that it's a renewed commitment uh, to open the doors for all Nigerians to be able to participate in the electoral process, not just as voters, but also as uh, elected officials. One area that I'd like to to drill down a little bit more is this area of international election observation. Of course, observing elections internationally, it's something that IRA and NDI have done, what, over 200 200 and sometimes (laughs) we say 50 countries (laughs) plus, right? But I, I would say that it's certainly been questioned increasingly, the value of international observation, right? Are we being responsive to the changing nature of elections? What are your thoughts on it in terms of the value for the citizens? And then how does that work its way into what citizen observer groups are doing? I can see uh, why some people may pose those questions. And in some cases, people have even said things that try to minimize the impact of international observers. But I think despite the criticisms, there's still an admiration out there and a recognition that international observers, especially international observers fielded by reputable organizations that have a track record, that have a methodology, that are also very transparent in their work, that these international observers continue to uh, have impact. And it's, first of all, uh, to be able to report independently and impartially and accurately on what transpired on election day. Uh, Second of all, it's also by that presence to deter fraud or detect it where it happens and report on it. Uh, Because we know in many cultures, uh, not just in Africa, but in in other continents, uh, people tend to put their best foot forward when they know the world is watching. And so that's another reason to have internationals. And thirdly, it's also a mark of solidarity with the peoples in these countries that are emerging democracies to let them know that the values that they aspire to are values that are universally accepted and recognized. 
and by being present, it's a sign that small d Democrats in other countries around the world empathize with their cause and want to be with their side through those uh, defining moments in their democracy. And I think that the collaboration that has emerged amongst international organizations and also between international observers and domestic observers or citizen observers that collaboration has really allowed us and each country to really have the best of both worlds because you have the citizen observers who deploy in huge numbers and they exchange information with the internationals who have better outreach possibilities and ultimately the message gets out about what transpired in the country in a very succinct and accurate fashion, and that's very good. Also, international groups that observe elections have gotten the message, really investing also in our own efforts to be there long term. I think what also adds value is that we are providing technical suggestions, technical ideas, and the ideas aren't just to people who are running the election, like the election commissions, but also civil society, media, talking to political parties, engaging with uh, the government, even security, and saying, here are some international best practices, or in our experience working in Nigeria, comparative to some of the other places we work. So I also think spreading that out and showing that we're not just showing up on election day, like some groups do, and, and it's been a challenge, I think, in the past. Having been on this job for, for many years, I still remember the days when, um, you know, some organizations would fly people into the country a few days before election day. But that has evolved. And today, international observation is done following a methodology that require certain minimum conditions for an organization to be able to fill international observance. And you have to have sent in pre-election missions. You have to have written public reports with recommendations. And you'll see that in the case of Nigeria, some of the recommendations that have been put forward in previous years by IRI and NDI have been uh, adopted by Nigerians uh, to improve the electoral process. I remember when uh, Nigerian elections used to have a two-tier process on E-Day, on election day, and people would come out very early in the morning and they would line up till midday just for accreditation. Just to identify Just themselves. to identify yes. themselves. I'm a, and then I'm they'll a voter. go home, yes. exactly. And then they'll come back around midday and line up again to start voting. Our organizations made the recommendation that that was likely to impact negatively on voter turnout. And Sorry. that was also penalizing the elderly, elderly voters or pregnant women. And it was difficult for people to spend that whole day. Uh, whereas the process ought to be fine-tuned to allow people to get accredited, identified, and vote at the same time. And the Election Commission of Nigeria has now adopted that principle, and that has seen a huge improvement in how they process voters on election day. Well, just one more question. How does a Nigeria good election, bad election, political developments impact the broader region? Cameroon has challenges, right? Ivory Coast has challenges. So many of these countries are really dealing with fragile security issues, democracy issues. And a Nigeria that's having some of these issues doesn't make me feel very good. I, I, share, your, I share your feelings, and you're right, because uh, when Nigeria does well, it definitely lifts up the rest of West Africa. But when Nigeria is uh, struggling, even if it's modeling through its elections, uh, you can be sure that a number of countries would, some of the leaders who are recalcitrant autocrats, you know, would take advantage of that and say, oh, you know, they could even do it right in Nigeria that's got all these resources. So why do you expect us to do differently? And that's why we need to continue to impress upon our Nigerian partners 
the political leaders, the civic leaders, the election commission, the journalists, and democracy advocates in Nigeria need to realize that they have to speak out. The country has uh, been a functioning democracy for 20 years. They can't take that for granted. And, and also, they need to realize that a lot of the other opportunities uh, that may come their way, whether it's in private sector development, whether it's in restoring security in the northeastern part of the country, that these issues are intertwined with good governance and good elections. And so you can't say we'll close our eyes on the elections and just focus on security yeah. because yeah. invariably at some point, uh, if, if the youth are disenfranchised or disaffected by the state, they can become very vulnerable to some of these extremist organizations. So a holistic approach that is required and I hope is that uh, Nigerians will take this to heart and they will work on improving their game because the world expects them to play in the Premier League. Next, we'll hear from Judd Devermont from CSIS. It's always great to talk Nigeria with Judd because he has such a passion for the topic, for the country, for the people of Nigeria. It's a real big picture and it takes a lot of time. Judd provides a very good overview as to why Nigeria is important to the world. Why should you as a listener care about Nigeria? It'll be really important to listen to this interview. Thank you, Judd, for joining us today. My pleasure. Given your work and background on Nigeria, I'm sure you've seen many elections. I've studied many elections. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you've studied many elections. <laughs> How do these rank in terms of uh, what Nigeria has gone through to this point? I mean, 2015, many people talk about that, not only because of the outcome, but there were some improvements in the process. And here we are in 2019, and, and, and what we are hearing and what we are seeing are some serious challenges. Uh, what are your thoughts? I would say first that I agree with you, JT, that 2015 was a watershed for Nigerian elections because of the process and obviously because of the result, both at the presidential level but also at the gubernatorial election. And the story of Nigerian elections had really been in 1999, since when they transitioned to civilian rule, high turnout, 70%, and enthusiasm. And I think the international community recognized that there would be some technical problems, but overall, such a feat to have this transition from military to civilian. And then we started getting worse and worse. 2003 was worse than 99, and 2007 was much worse than 2003. Mm -hmm. And then we started getting a little better. 11 was a better, even if the results had some violence associated than 15. And 19, unfortunately, I think was a step back. I agree with a lot of the commentators. Uh, first of all, there was less enthusiasm and interest in this election, and then we saw them the turnout, 30%, which is the lowest turnout we've seen since 1999. I think there was a disillusionment with the candidates who were at best flawed. And I think some of the technical challenges that we saw were problematic. They tried to introduce a number of new things uh, in terms of smart card readers that I think made the process complicated. And then the elections that you and I observed, the gubernatorial, uh, there were some pretty big problems with it. And I think the IRNDI statement articulated most of them. But in places like River State and in Benway and in Emo, I mean, there was clear politicization, use of the military. And uh, I think it was a step back for sure. 
let's let's stay on the military topic for a second. Samson, uh, in in our discussion, talked a little bit about this issue of the militarization of elections and, and especially at the state level vote. How does Nigeria's sort of history of militarization play into what we saw in 2019? And what we'll see going forward. Yeah, I think it's it's not a linear story. Both if you look back to 99, and then I think if we look past 2015, 19, into 2023, the use of the military, and then the use of paramilitary, so let's call them militias and militants, varied state to state. So River State, which is the poster child for bad elections in Nigeria, uh, wasn't surprising that this has happened, and it's part of a longer history. In other places, such as in Benway and Emo, where the politics were as contentious as they were, I think that's when we started to see politicians lean on whether it was their own militias that they had connections to or the security services. So when I look forward, I think there both has to be a top-down focus from the army and the police about making sure that the security services are impartial. But then we have to get really case by case specific in terms of where are the most contentious politics, where are the places where politicians have these linkages to regular and irregular security folks, and then make sure that we're doing the kind of engagements that really put a marker down that this is unacceptable. Another thing that you've already talked about is the lack of voter turnout in this election. People vote with their feet in terms of their confidence in the political process. It does seem to me that there's a lot of reform that has to take place. There was reform that did occur but didn't get signed into law. And there's probably a lot of other stuff that has to get looked at in terms of political parties. What can we do to deal with this apathy question uh, in Nigeria moving forward? I mean, it seems like that is the big the big thing, getting people to have the faith and the patience enough to engage in the election. I think there's a, a raft of things that we could do. First of all, the U.S. government had made a statement in 2015 and a statement in, ahead of this election that people who were spoilers to the election, there'd be consequences. And I think I could put a list in the next five seconds. We've of, been talking about yes, lists, yes. Of, of folks at very senior levels, ministers and governors who uh, really... Senators. Senators yeah. who yeah. tilted these elections in problematic ways and there should be consequences. And I think the international community should be saying that we don't stand for this complacency. And I think Nigerians, and I think we should do that in, with partnership with Nigerians who have been thinking about this. It shouldn't be just an internationally-led run. Number two, intra-party politics needs some reforms, and you can talk to ambitious, um, public-surface-oriented Nigerians who want to play and can't because of the way the parties are structured, both in terms of the entrance into a party and then in terms of the primaries. Three, party proliferation is out of control. There are 70 parties when I observed this election, people didn't know. They, I mean, it was, a, it was a joke. It was a joke. At the end of every polling unit, they would say, and one, and yeah. one, yeah. and one vote for these all these nothing briefcase parties. So I think there's got to be some reforms about, how to, about parties. And then can I just do one more, JT, sure. that uh, is really important to me? There has to be more thoughtfulness about the staggering of these elections and the order of these elections. Every time that we have a presidential election first, followed within a couple weeks of a gubernatorial election, turnout drops dramatically. Even if technical capability improves, the idea that they could have this election, you know, within two weeks of each other, the election was supposed to happen on February 23rd. Today is what we're recording on the 26th of March. The elections are still not over. Right. So there wasn't much thoughtfulness about staggering these elections in mm -hmm. ways that the mm -hmm. INEC could get their act together, that Nigerians could actually 
think about their own calendar and how to get out to their home areas to vote. Yeah. And so there's a lot of thinking about if it's going to realistically take a month to do an election, let's just call a spade a spade. India takes multiple months to finish its election process. And I think that's a reform that Nigeria should really think about. Yes, it brings a lot of, it raises the blood pressure, but um, I think we could have a better election that way. Absolutely. And it doesn't put so much pressure on INEC to deliver everything all at once, which was a big problem in this election. I mean, postponing the February 16th vote, federal elections, uh, five hours to the opening of polls to February 23rd, um, not only disrupted uh, political campaigns, but certainly voters, right, who had gone all the way home to vote and then decided not to go back maybe or couldn't afford to go back, right? Well, let's, let's move away from elections now maybe and get into, we have this president-elect, President Buhari's been <clears throat> announced as elected to his second term. Of course, there is a court case uh, underway by his challenger, Tiku Bubakar. But assuming he takes office and is inaugurated in a few months' time, what are his priorities? Obviously, security reform, electoral reform. Well, the question is, what are his priorities and what should be his priorities? <laughs> what is his priorities, I think, will be a continuation of the anti-corruption fight. Um, it's been synonymous with Buhari from his earliest days. He's a strident fighter on anti-corruption, although the record is a little more mixed. I think what he should be doing is, first of all, reassuring the markets about his governance. There was an article today or yesterday in Bloomberg that for the first time, actual investor confidence in Nigeria after an election dropped for the first time since 1999. Wow. There's just wow. deep market skepticism about his commitment to doing things that encourage investors uh, to come into the market. The second is I think he needs to refocus his energies on both the fight against Boko Haram and on the in the Northeast, and then the har- farmer herder violence in the Middle Belt. There's been more or just about as much violence between farmers and herders in the Middle Belt as there was with Boko Haram in 2018. And Buhari hasn't done enough to prove that he, as he said in his inaugural address in 2015, is the president of everyone and the president of no one. Nigerians in the Middle Belt see him as um, supportive of herders and not farmers, and he's got to address that situation. It's, it seems to me that people are often summing up the issue of the farmer-herder conflict and some of these other issues as sort of a Christian-Muslim you know, war that's going on in the country, and there are major challenges, and this is a religious conflict. What do you think about that? No, it's, it's far from that. It is about a competition over dwindling resources, over grazing rights, over water, over political access. Now, here's the complicated part. Farmers and herders are economic classes. They just happen to also overlap with ethnic identity, and they just happen to overlap with religious identity. So many farmers are Christian minorities. Many herders are Fulani Muslims. And so by conflating this and by giving it more firepower, we're, at, we're actually going to make it true. And most Nigerians know that this is not the case, but many Nigerian politicians know that there's also some benefit to stoking up these kind of identity politics. And so Washington should not be engaging in this kind of rhetoric. Um, and we should be focusing on these real issues, which are economic and by nature. Why should someone who is not engaged in Africa, maybe somewhere in Asia, Europe, North America, care about Nigeria? What does it matter? What does it mean to the rest of the world? Largest population in Africa, it is going to be the third largest population in the world by 2045. So it is growing tremendously, right? The future is Nigerian in many ways. 
two, it's the second largest, sorry, it's the biggest economy in Africa. And that's, yes, because of oil. But what's really interesting is it has a, a really vibrant non-oil sector. The dirty secret about Nigeria, it's a government that feeds off oil receipts. It's an economy that is actually non-oil based. So I think there's a lot of investment opportunities uh, for U.S. companies and for the international community to think about Nigeria. It has long been a a leading country on the continent. It has been on the Security Council multiple times. And when it is on the council, it does vote with the United States fairly regularly. It is the only country right now in sub-Saharan Africa to have oval offices from President Trump, Obama, and President Bush. No other African leader, sub-Saharan African leader, has accomplished that. So for all of those reasons, and those are some of the positive reasons we should be engaged, but there's also some negative ones as well, whether it's terrorism. Migration. Uh, migration, which you know truly affects Europe. Nigerians are a large percentage of some of the African migrants. And then crime, all those annoying emails that you get <laughs> the uh, about advanced fee fraud, yes. although I think that that joke is is actually yes. not a very good uh, a representation of how advanced, advanced fee fraud has become. Absolutely. So there's a number of, in the basket of really positive things that we need to take account when it comes to Nigeria. And then there's another basket of the the negative things when Nigeria is not healthy that we need to look at. Maybe just one final question. Where do you see Nigeria 10 years from now? Where do you see its democracy? I think the next four years are going to be tough um, because President Buhari, who's got a lot of strengths, has not shown a lot of flexibility about thinking about some of the problems ahead of him. And if the economy continues to be anemic, and if the Boko Haram problem uh, does not change and the herder farmer problem does not change, I think that we will see another coalition of Nigerians standing up and saying that this will not happen. That is my silver lining. It's my silver lining that both the current generation and the up-and-coming generation yeah. will come together and say, like they have done many times before, is that we need a course correction. And so that's the positive side of the story. And the negative side of the story is that if we're still complacent, if we just kind of muddle through, um, then when we look back, actually, it won't be a muddle through. It will be a steady decline. And mm-hmm. that's one of mm-hmm. our challenges, is if we keep looking at the trees and not the forest, we will see muddle through. And if we look at the forest, we'll see something very different, and it should really concern all of us. We want to thank our guests again for taking the time to speak with us and unpack this very important but highly complex topic of Nigeria, Nigeria's elections, Nigeria's democracy, and frankly, why it's important to you, the listener, why you should be paying attention. I also want to note that this is my last podcast with IRI. I'll be headed over to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to continue working on Africa, but obviously in a different role. So you won't hear me in this way, uh, but I would just like to thank you all for listening, engaging, and being interested in democratic development and how to make it better. This is JT signing off. Oh, 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 oh,